Hi, I'm Lori. And I'm Kevin, and this is No Longer Ashamed. We are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And we're here to share with you that if you're a survivor, you don't have to be alone. Our logo is a salamander, and the reason is a fire salamander can survive a fire, and you have survived a fire. We want to help you with your journey to healing and hope. We are all survivors together, and we walk this journey together. And you are not alone. By telling our stories, we are hoping that you will have the courage to share in your stories as well and find your voice. Because stories are so important, and for so long, I know that I wouldn't tell my story. But when I finally shared my story, that's when I got my freedom. And this is our journey and your journey to healing and hope. So come with us. Our guest today is Dr. Doug Carpenter, and we are so excited to have him on the show. He was brought to our attention from our good friend, Mike, and he is doing a lot of work in the recovery arena, including writing a book, Secret Shame. And I really, really like the section, the chapter on why men don't come forward. So we're going to touch on that. But uh, before we do, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your story? Sure. Well, I first want to say thank you very much, Kevin and Lori, for having me on today and giving me this opportunity to speak with you and to your listeners. First of all, I'll tell you a little bit about my professional life and then I'll go backwards. I am a clinical psychologist. I have a doctorate in clinical psych. I have a master's degree that specialized in addictions. Mm -hmm. I've been a licensed psychologist since 1998, so 24 years. Most of that time I have spent working with males of sexual trauma, sexual addiction, childhood issues, wounding. My first book came out in 2018. It was called Childhood Trauma and the Non-Alpha Male, where I looked at fatherhood wounds and problems that boys have finding their masculinity when they didn't have strong male role models. And then the second book is about male sexual abuse and how it impacts male sexual development. So I spent most of my career helping and seeing men speaking about these types of issues. Both of the books that I've written are also very near and dear to my heart. I definitely struggled with my own sense of masculinity because I did not have a strong relationship with my father. My father was present in the home, but was not emotionally present. Mm. And then I also experienced some incidents of sexual abuse. When I was probably about five to seven or eight years old, there was a, a girl down the street who was probably four years older than I was. And she would frequently ask if she could see my penis, if she could touch my penis. As the years progressed and I became an adult, it became very clear to me that she was probably being sexually abused or being exposed to explicit pornographic material just because of the, some of the things that she would say to me during those times when she would ask to see me or touch me. And um, she definitely had a adult knowledge about what an adult penis should be doing or what should be happening, be happening with it on ejaculation and so forth. And of course, at age five to seven, I had no clue about that. And then when I was probably around age 11, 11 to 12 years old, I did not have many male friends. And so I became close with another boy at school who was kind of from a wealthy family. And I would go over to his house. And when I got there, there were Playboy magazines everywhere. 
They were on the coffee table, on the end table, in the bathroom, on the poker table downstairs. They were just out like it was Better Homes and Garden. <laughs> and, you know, his mother lived in this house and his father lived in this house and he was an only child. He was actually the, the stepchild to the father. And so naturally, when the parents would leave, he and I would, of course, look at these magazines out of, you know, all this curiosity. And then one day he actually asked if he could start touching me and started touching me. I was a very naive uh, 11, 12 year old boy, did not have much sexual knowledge at all. At that point, he masturbated me to orgasm, which I had no clue that was going to happen, what was happening, what was happening with my body. I did not find it pleasurable. I, I felt like it was very terrifying. I talk in my book about a sense of body betrayal, almost like you, you're, you feel like your body is betraying you. You don't understand why it's responding. Why is it doing these things? So that was, that was pretty traumatic for me the first time that happened. And that actually happened with him probably a handful of times. And of course, I, I later then did develop the pleasurable feelings that go along with it. But the first time or two, I was pretty terrified. It was pretty scary because I, I just had no knowledge of what was going to transpire. And so naturally through adolescence, then I think I had the typical questions that individuals who've been sexually abused have like why did he do this to me why did he want to touch me what was there about me that he thought he could do this or why did my body respond to him you know that that's one thing that i talk a lot with males about is that they have you know genitalia that responds to touch and and stimulation very easily yeah. and your mind does not know the difference between abuse sex, intimacy, it just, it's a stimulus response condition. If you're, if you have stimulus, your body's going to respond. That's the way God designed us biologically. And so your mind doesn't know that you're being sexually abused. There are parts of your brain that don't know that. There are other parts of your brain that may experience the, the terrifi terrifying feelings and recognize that something's awry with the situation. So through adolescence then, uh, you know, I had those similar questions, I think, as most victims do. And it also led to some sexual confusion on my part, really having to decipher out, was that a homosexual act? Did that somehow make me homosexual because my body responded? Does that mean that I must like men? And then in the book, I, I think this is an important topic. And those people who have read the book, and I've been on other podcasts, are really jumping at is there is definitely a difference between sexual arousal and sexual desire. Mm -hmm. And many people do not understand the difference between the two. You know, sexual arousal is something that really you've just been conditioned to be aroused by. And that's why we have fetishes. That's why people can become sexually aroused by many, many different things. It's just an association that's been formed in the, in the mind. But that doesn't mean that it's what your sexual desire is. It's just two things that have become paired together. Mm -hmm. Your sexual desire is more about what does your heart long for? What do you desire to connect with as far as another person, a type of person, your spirituality comes into play with your sexual desire. So many men will say, I'm aroused and turned on by men, but I don't really have 
a sexual desire for men. My desire is for to be with a female, to have a family, to move on. But they're left with so much confusion because sexual desire and sexual arousal are confused. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought that up, Doug, because I think that that's where so much of the shame comes in. And my story is I was married to a gay man. And this was, okay. uh, gosh, 20, over 20 years ago. And so, you know, back in that day, he couldn't come out. You know, that wasn't a possibility for him. And, you know, later we found out that things had happened to him when he was a kid. And even as adult, he wasn't believed. We were able to carry on, um, not married, but, you know, raise our kids. We have a friendship, not Will and Grace. (laughs) (laughs) But I know that there is just so much confusion. And that's, I think, the biggest thing of what Kevin and I, why we want to do this is the thing that you said, we said in the beginning, it's different for women. Women may not be aroused. And so with men, it's the opposite. And how confusing is that for, like you said, a five-year-old when you don't know anything? Yeah. Right. It's very confusing. I have read hundreds of research articles. Um, This book has been about six years in the making. And the number one side effect of sexual abuse for men is sexual confusion. Yeah. And I think it absolutely has to do with the male body response to touch. And even if you don't want it to, you know, I tell men when, when they're talking to me in counseling or in therapy about this, I tell them, if I blindfolded you right now and had a person come in the room and start sexually stimulating you, you would not know if it was a man or a woman, but your body would begin to respond. Mm -hmm. It's doing exactly what God designed it to do. Which is why we call it abuse. Exactly. (laughs) Well, and there's several sides to that. I mean, men who have been abused by men or boys that are abused by boys, they have that confusion about if they're stimulated, if they're, does that mean they're gay? But also males that are abused by women, if that becomes a repulsive thing to them, then they wonder, you know, okay, now anytime sexual stimulation comes up, I'm repulsed. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm a, you know, I have the desire for a woman, but I don't, you know, I'm repulsed by it. There's so at times, you know, in, I have a chapter in my book called sexual avoidance and sexual anorexia. Mm-hmm. And those are individuals who respond in a negative way to what they've experienced to where they back away and refuse to be involved in any kind of sexual relationship, sexual, sexual stimulation from another person, because it does become repulsive to them. It's been my experience counseling men for the last 24 years that men who are abused by women, I believe, have a higher propensity to become more sexually promiscuous versus sexually anorexic. That does happen at times. Mm -hmm. And what I have found to be true is that the boys or the teenage boys feel so violated by the female and that so much power and control was taken away from them that they will never be put in that place again. So I will take the power and control away from you before you get the chance of that happening to me. Mm-hmm. So then they tend to sexualize all their interactions with females and it becomes a conquest and they will not give up their power, the, the power and control to another person. Again, they will be the aggressor. And so they become much more promiscuous. I've, I've found so many men who've been sexually abused by women and they will just have had 
multiple, multiple female sexual partners. Mm -hmm. Mm. And then there's someone like me that's been abused by males and females and Mm. I'm all messed up. But I think for everyone, their story is different. And that's why we want to give give people the opportunity to share their story. And so that I think that for so many survivors, what's important to realize that you're not alone, that you can relate when you hear of someone else's story then you we had we had a guest recently gino who was basically he was searching for porn and he came upon a survivor's story and he was reading it initially for a sexual turn-on but then he realized that he that story resonated so much with him it just struck him he realized that was his story as well he he, it just resonated so much and that he realized all up until that point in his life he had literally would never admit to being abused wouldn't wouldn't well i I think so many men are confused about was i abused Mm -hmm. or not you know and again it's because their body responded to the touch and so then they tend to not classify it as abuse or if they experience some sense of pleasure by having an orgasm or ejaculating then it becomes confusing well was this abuse because I must have enjoyed it because look what happened. So it becomes, again, so confusing that they don't label it as sexual abuse. You know, that research also shows that men, there were three very large studies about disclosure of sexual abuse, and they found that men wait an average of about 25 years before they ever disclose to another person that they've been abused. And so many men come into my office and will begin to tell their story of what happened, but they don't use the words sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And I have to begin exploring that with them until they come to realize and have that insight oh, this really was abuse. I was abused. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's so important now to deal with the statute of limitations because it's kind of a joke. I mean, so many states have statute of limitations, but you know, you're talking about a five-year-old or someone really young. Right. You expect them to come forward when they're children or just young adults. Right. They don't even have the language yet to be able to do that. Or if you're raised in a strong Christian home, you can't use those words. Exactly. <laughs> right. You know, so yeah. I, I can't I can't use those words. I can't go tell an adult yeah. what's what happened to me. I'm not supposed to use those kinds of words. And Which, there's that natural feeling bad. So even if the abuser isn't saying you're bad, you know, we interviewed a woman last week and she said her dad was right, right over there when something was going on. Yeah. But she didn't know how to tell him. And her first thought is, I'm going to get in trouble. Yeah. Well, right. And, and I've also, I, I bring this up in the book too, that I have, I believe it's chapter nine. Chapter nine uh, deals with all of the reasons why men don't tell. Mm-hmm. And there's there's over 30 reasons listed in that chapter of can why- you go over, Can you go over some tell. of those? Sure, yeah. sure. And some of these, you know, are, are what we're talking about. They're those, yeah. those early- early problems of I don't have the language for this yeah you know I don't know how to say this um and we've also touched on that whole refusal to self-identify as that this was sexual abuse you know many men also think especially if it happens by another boy 
or another man, I'm the only one this has happened to. I have no awareness of that concept of universality that other people can have the same experience that I'm having. They think they're the only one. Also, sometimes men are confused or boys get confused because maybe the perpetrator does it in a sly way. Maybe they touch them while wrestling or playing football or while out swimming, and then they get confused. I had one male come in and tell me that his brother, his older brother, would fondle him in the middle of the night, but he would often be in like a, a half asleep, half awake state. And so he was very confused for a long period of time if this was actually happening or was I dreaming? Wow. There's also a lot of fear that you won't be believed yeah. if you disclose. Another thing is I've often heard kids say, well, you know, you hear phrases like, well, parents have eyes in the back of their head. I've had some kids tell me I thought my parents knew because I thought my parents knew everything. Hmm. Wow. And they weren't doing anything to stop it. So I either thought it was okay or that my parents weren't going to do anything about it because parents know everything mm. and they protect you. Yeah. That makes me want to cry. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really sad. You know, and a lot of times the perpetrator lies to the victim and tells them that wasn't sexual abuse or you did dream that or, oh, I just accidentally touched you. That was a complete accident. That That didn't really happen. Well, and with men, a lot of times they tell them, well, you wanted that. So that wasn't abuse. You obviously wanted it because because your body stimulated. Yeah. Yes. Well, I had a, one situation where a, a guy and I, I talk about this in the book, his perpetrator took him to his house. He wasn't his perpetrator yet. I think it was his coach and his coach took him to his house while he was taking him home from a ball game. And when the coach took him into his house, of course, he had pornographic magazines laying on his coffee table. And he told the boy, oh, you you can look at those. Go ahead. And so the boy looked at him. And of course, he immediately got an erection. And then the coach said to him, well, you know, you have an erection now. I have to help you get rid of that. Oh, really? And so he tricked him into believing this is your fault. Look at what you've done now. Yeah. And, and now I'm going to have to teach you to take care of this or get rid of this this is what we're going to have to do it's so sinister because it's just that epitome of somebody that you trust mm -hmm. absolutely it's such a violation you know mm -hmm. just that betrayal trauma i think that's one of the biggest myths about sexual abuse also is that most people and a lot of parents are warning their kids about the stranger that's stalking them you know <laughs> be careful about the stranger at the ball field or you know stranger danger the, yeah the stranger yes. danger. and yet the majority of perpetrators are someone who's known whether in the family in a familiar setting school absolutely church, it's yes. not the stranger danger that's well, the predominant because you're groomed they go through a grooming process mm -hmm. and then that makes the child even more confused and helps secure the secrecy exactly yeah. and i've even also heard which just broke my heart but a lot of perpetrators choose boys because boys don't tell right and especially, you know, they're not ever going to tell because of all the shame and just the, the nature of, you know, a boy being abused. They're just, they're going to hide it. Wow. Yes. So they because count it, on that. There's so much shame involved in that fear of being labeled as homosexual or gay. And again, using the kid's own body against them. Look at what happened. You responded. Yes. Yeah. So, so what I was doing and then so providing 
more confusion. Mm. Um, another problem is I think a lot of boys have felt like there's no opportunity to tell how many parents actually come right out and ask. Oh yeah. I've had to train counselors to come right out and ask that you have to ask these questions. And you guys already brought up an important point that I was going to say, even the research showed and in the interviews, I interviewed 13 men in detail for this book Yeah, and their parents did not talk to them about sexual abuse. Boys were warned about stranger danger, Mm -hmm. but they were warned about stranger danger in relation to sexual abuse. It was more about kidnapping or being taken, but it wasn't about this stranger could touch you or hurt you in a sexual way. I was very careful with my children, both my daughter and my son, to educate them about potential sexual abuse, kinds of touch, who's allowed to touch you, who's not allowed to touch you. And if somebody tries to touch you, that's an adult issue. You just come tell dad and dad will take care of it. Yeah, it's so important for them to be okay to talk about it as well. And right. So many boys are ashamed of their body as they're developing anyway. Absolutely. You know, it's going to be so hard for them to even want to talk about it when something like that happens. Well, and, and just that when somebody who is well received, especially, you know, the a big problem is in the church. And I know as a little person, I always thought, who's going to believe me over an adult? Right. Well, and I think another problem is for boys, we hear so much that girls are victims. Mm-hmm. Boys aren't victims. Girls aren't victims. So we think as boys, there's no help for us. Oh, There's nowhere to turn. There's no help for us. There's only help for girls. And I'm probably the only, only boy this has ever happened to. Well, I think there's a huge misconception about sexual abuse that people don't realize the scope of how many men are abused i mean they you know it's becoming very well known how many you know with the me too movement and so forth bill cosby and all the different but with men you know the catholic church was kind of a big eye-opener and then with the boy scouts but people don't realize the scope that it's one in six men one in six that's right and that they believe that's a severe underestimation because men wait 25 years to tell in fact this my book just came out a week ago tuesday And I've had two men email me in the last week and tell me that they waited 35 years before they ever told anyone. Yeah, well, I waited 20 some years. I don't know exactly. But yeah, I was it was at least 25. And I would never have told. The reason I told was a good friend of mine, her sister came out about being (laughs) abused. And my friend didn't really believe her and wondered why it took her so long to talk about it. And, you know, was kind of questioning it. She thought she was trying to get attention. I was like, no, I I believe her because I'm also a survivor. And I understand why she couldn't talk about it. And that that was the first time I had ever spoken the words. And I probably never would have otherwise. I mean, I had no intention to ever tell anyone. Right. You think that's a secret that's going to go to your grave with you if you even recognize that it was sexual abuse. That's so key because I think that when, especially happening maybe even in your home is you, you don't know, number one, you can feel like it's only you, uh, which is bad because then you don't tell and then like other people suffer. So I heard a story of a kid who was touched by his Boy Scout leader. He went to his dad and his dad took him out of the Scouts. Mm -hmm. Now this was probably 60 years ago or more. So there wasn't the help then, but they didn't go to the authorities. 
but he right. did save his son. Yeah. And yeah. so then you've got the ones that they just think this is what life is. Right. The kind of it's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Another section in the book that I talk about, or another reason why men don't tell is I, I call it the man rules. I get it from uh, a sociologist named Dan Griffin. Boys are supposed to like sex, mm. right? We're not supposed to cry. We're not supposed to be weak. We're sp- supposed to like sex. And in fact, mm. I have a whole chapter in the book where I talk about cultural barriers uh, regarding sexual abuse. And I read one uh, large study out of Jamaica where Jamaican men are taught that any kind of sexual behavior or anything that's done to them as a child, they're supposed to like welcome that as initiation. Whether it's abuse, whether they didn't want it, whether it was wanted, any kind of sexual interaction is just considered initiation. And they're accepted as initiation. And so that's a beautiful was, form of denial. Oh, denial. Yeah. That is encouraging wow. abuse. Wow. I mean, that's, yes. that's the way yes, it does encourage perpetrators. Well, and I think an, the hard part about you were talking about the man rules, especially if it's a woman or a girl that is a perpetrator, it's really hard for a guy to say, I didn't like it, especially if. All right your other friends are talking about like it's a great thing or it was yeah. yeah. for you. You're not going to admit that you didn't like it because right. you're going to be shamed. Well, I named probably a minimum of 10 movies in the book that are all about adolescent yeah. boys and adult female women yeah. engaged in a sexual relationship. And it's completely sexualized. Like this is a wonderful thing for this boy. And yeah. he, this opportunity that he's getting. If we had a list of 20 movies where the reverse of that was at play, where older men were having sex and love relationships with teenage girls, can you imagine what how our society would, Just, would handle that? But if the reverse is happening, yeah. then somehow it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's more socially accepted. Which one of the young men we interviewed, that was his story. Mm-hmm. And that was so confusing because all when he did try to say something, his friends were like, yes, you know, and it was like, right. no. And so, you know, um, when he found our podcast, it was really like the first time that he mm-hmm. had any validation. And, you know, we connected him with Mike, who, you know, and, yes. and of course, um, from there, he's, you know, he's done a lot of really great work, but it's like, that's why it's so important to tell our stories so that we know we're not alone. So this is brilliant. What are some other on your list? Another problem that I found throughout the literature was there's a high degree of dissociation for males. Mm-hmm. That the situation is so painful or it's so shocking that they will just block it out of their memory and don't remember it for years to come, which that can happen with either sex. Yeah. But the research has shown that males seem to be more susceptible to it resulting in dissociation. Huh. Wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah, which which that was shocking to me, too, as I read through the literature. You know, I'm familiar with dissociation, but the degree at which it happens for males who have been sexually abused is quite, quite alarming. I'm curious. I wonder why. I know I've experienced both. I I have vivid memories of when I was abused the first time. It's actually my first memory. It's when my life began. You know, I was so young. But when I was later on abused, 
I was around 11 and I have severe repression of that. I, I don't remember it. Well, I remember l the events leading up to it and then yeah. there's nothing there. I can't, I, I remember running away from there afterwards and that's mm -hmm. it. Right. I, I record a story in the book and uh, I use the man's name as Stephen, I think. So Stephen was a Boy Scout and they were at a Boy Scout camp. And before it was bedtime, he was nine years old, I believe, when this happened, either nine or 11. He asked to go to the bathroom. And so this 20 year old guy escorted him to the bathroom, but it was kind of across the campus where they were staying. And the boy actually on the way there threw him into the woods and raped him from behind. Yeah. And then when they were done, he took him to the bathroom, took him back to the camp. A week later, Stephen was back in school and he got called into the principal's office and his mom and his dad and the principal were there and they all began to question him about if he had been sexually violated some in some way by this this 20 some year old and he had no memory of the event but the man had actually done it to a couple of other boys who had come forward and they knew that Stephen had been one of the boys as well but he had no memory of the event and said denied that it happened and it wasn't until years later that that memory began coming back to him so I think, you know, that suppression, that repression and, and the denial of it and dissociating when, when the event is occurring from it fragments your memory so much that sometimes people don't remember yeah. until years later. Can we expand on that a little? Because my experience was repressed memories and uh, thank you to a prominent Christian counselor there now false repressed memories. Yes. And we've all made these up too. And um, in my case, even because this was the story, it was shared with my, my daughter's someone she married into a family. And that person mentioned to me, oh yeah, you know, you guys, you and your sister made this stuff up. And I remember being so mortified and having to go and tell my daughter, you know, basically, if you believe this, that I would do such a horrible thing as to make up a story, you should never let me around my granddaughter. I am not the type of person that should be around your granddaughter if you want to believe this, but because it has been so in, especially in the Christian world, so widely accepted. Now, are there false repressed memories? There maybe are false people make things up and yes. then, but even when people remember and then recant, it's because they don't want to lose their family. Right. So again, right. they're not believed. And because right. it's so horrendous, that has just been really an issue for me. It's been hard for me to talk about because it's almost like, well, do I have to prove it? Well, I can't. Right. There's a great book called Unchained Memories mm -hmm. by Dr. Lenore Terror, T-E-R-R. -R. She's a psychiatrist, I think, out of California. And she has a wonderful book called Unchained Memories that talks a lot about how these memories have emerged and where she has been involved in cases and court cases where a person's memories have come forward, come, emerged as time went on. Not therapist induced, you know, right. not, not planting of false memories, where, but where these memories have spontaneously emerged and then have been proven. In her, in her book, I remember one story that just jumped out at me. This lady her dad looked at her in a specific way that just jarred her and when he looked at her in that way she immediately got a flashback when she was eight years old that he had turned around in the car and looked at her in the same way and she had a sudden memory that her dad had killed her friend killed her eight-year-old friend and had buried her 
somewhere near a beach where they were going. And Dr. Tear was part of the court case where they actually went out and they dug up the body and found the eight-year-old. But that lady had suppressed that memory for years and years and years and did not remember it. And that spontaneously came forward. And, and the same thing can happen with sexual abuse memories. And in fact, that may be some of the first signs that something has happened. We call, call them body memories. You, your body may react to a trigger and you have no idea why, but it's a body memory. It's having a memory of something that has felt in the past that led back to your abuse. And gradually those memories start to become more clear. Yeah. And I would say you are having those kind of flashes or thoughts rather than diss them. Just go to a counselor call and get right. help. And the thing is, I think that some people, when that happens, when they do start to remember, there's so much fear because they're still in that little person state that they're going to get in trouble, Right? is that we want people to know there is help and protection if that's what you need. Counselors know exactly how to connect you. If you, if that, if this memory is going to cause you to put be in danger. They right. know how to help you with that. And that we don't want anyone to feel alone. And I, you know, it's important to me for people listening to know that that was my story. I started having these flashes and memories and it was when I started having kids and it was horrendous. But fortunately, I had good enough people around me to urge me to counseling. And, you know, and I had actually been in counseling in, in my early twenties and this, none of this ever came up because for some reason, my body wasn't ready to delete. Right. You, it's uh, funny you that out. you mentioned that, you know, feeling like still in a childlike state. A lot of times with men, I find the opposite to be true where they are taking an adult cognitive mindset and superimposing it onto the child. Like I should have been able to fight him off. Yeah. I should have been able to say no. I should have been able to tell somebody what was going on. And they take all this adult lo adult logic and reasoning and project it onto their child self yeah. when their child self did not have that kind of cognitive ability to come forward and do those things or even fight off. In yeah. fact, the research shows that a lot of times perpetrators stop abusing boys once they reach puberty because they don't, don't like the secondary sex characteristics or boys start becoming strong enough that they then can fight off the abuse. So the average age of abuse for males, according to the research and all the research that I, I read, came down to between the ages of eight and nine mm. is when a, a boy is most likely to be sexually abused. Mm. And you sure can't fight off an adult no. at the age eight or nine. No, no. This is so good. This is just such great information that could really help people get some freedom. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and you you used a phrase earlier. It's about people telling their story. I always use the, the phrase, find your voice. You need to find your voice. You need to be heard. You need to tell your story. Yeah. I love that. And again, yeah. on that note of finding a counselor, if you, if you have a hard time finding a counselor or you don't know where to look, there are, you could call your crisis line or RAIN, which is R-A-I-N-N. We do list those on our website. And uh, there are places you can call to get help if you don't know where to look. And we have them listed on our website, um, the crisis line, the suicide hotline, and the abuse hotline. There's So definitely there are places that can help you even if you don't know where to look. Just, uh, right. That's great. The first, 
the first step, you know, take that first step and speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is a lot more help now than there was back. For sure. Back when and I was it, dealing with Yeah, them. it can be terrifying. I mean, we've told the story over and over. The first time I really said anything about what I was going through was to Kevin's wife. And I'm, you know, that was back in the day before cell phone. I must have called her 20, 30 times that day. You're not going to tell anyone. You're not going to say anything because I didn't even mean it to come out. And I didn't even. And so it's terrifying. But you want to find the people that can be safe. Right. So you can start to explore this. Yeah. Yeah. Another reason men don't tell is that, uh, again, it's it's an all out attack on their masculinity. Yeah. You know, and when a boy is penetrated or forced to perform oral sex, um, a lot of times they will feel like that somehow feminized them. Yeah. That I was put in the place of a girl, of, of being a receiver. They're, they're completely emasculated. Yes, there was very much so. I don't know if you've ever watched Bull, that TV show Bull. The, I have not. The detective. There was actually an episode that I had a hard time watching because it was about male survivors. It just addressed it so realistically as far as the reaction of the adult men trying to come out in court about what happened to them and how difficult that was and yes. one, of the, one of the men who was a survivor and they wanted him to testify he he just couldn't because he had a wife and kids and he's like no i i can't i can't do that to them i can't talk about the story in court right my wife and kids know yeah. know about it it's because, that humiliation factor yeah mm. so yeah just feeling so humiliated yeah and so boys often feel like this, this feminized me, this robbed me of my masculinity. Tyler Perry, who's an actor and yeah. a writer, and he was sexually abused, and he tells a lot about his story, but he made a phrase, something about, what did this man give me to carry inside my heterosexuality? Mm. That this man violated me in a way and gave me something that I was now had to carry while he's trying to be a heterosexual man. Yeah. And just the amount of sexual confusion that it brings up. Wow. Yeah. What are some more yeah. things on your list? This is um, so Yeah, boys also, especially if they've been penetrated, and much like little girls, I'm sure there's a big fear of medical procedures. You know, that was already painful yeah. enough that if I tell and, and somebody gives me an examination, this is just mm -hmm. going to feel violating all over again, you know, which, yeah. which is always the case in, in rape or anytime that there's yes. a medical examination that there can be a lot of fear. Yeah. Also kids think if this is a family member, I can't disclose this. Mm -hmm. I can't tell. Yeah. And it may be the only family member that actually gives them attention. Well, right. And especially if that family member has groomed them and is giving them rewards for this mm -hmm. or a positive attention. Yeah. If this is a family member, they may feel like they have to keep it, keep it secret. Also, if outside perpetrators will do this too, say, well, you know, if, if, you, if you have a single mom who's got a son and somebody befriends him and then starts sexually abusing him, he'll use that information against the child. Mm -hmm. Yes. What's going to happen if you, if I can't babysit you anymore, your mom's going to lose her job. You're going to lose the apartment. You're going to be homeless. It's going to yeah. be all your fault. It's all going to be all your fault. You, you can't tell. Yeah. yeah. yeah they use and I, I have a sad thing to confess. When I was a single mom, I really didn't have that concern for my boys. Mm. There was another thing I wanted to um, 
reiterate about the, you know, you were talking about doctors and how going to the doctor can be really difficult. Yes. Well, you know, we've yeah. had a couple episodes about triggers and also about red flags. And I think one of the things I talked to a woman who has a podcast about foster parenting, and she didn't realize the red flag of how hard it is for a survivor who's a child to go to a doctor or go to yes. a dentist, or even for me, it was even a barber, just just being in that close of proximity to a man was yes. extremely difficult when I was a kid. So I hated going to the barber, let alone the doctor or dentist. Mm -hmm. That's a big red flag if suddenly your child is completely upset and freaked out about going to see a doctor or even, you know, just being in close proximity to a, either a male or female figure, depending on who was the perpetrator. So, right. Well, we need to learn to listen to yeah. our children, even what they're not saying. Yeah. But what they're doing that is suddenly different or suddenly right. unusual right. for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, I didn't even know that was a trigger for me. You just knew you hated it? Until I was, yeah, until I was in my 30s, practically. I mean, and I went to male doctors and male dentists and male barbers mm -hmm. until I realized, oh my gosh, this is just triggering me every time. Why am I <laughs> doing this to myself? Yeah. And I've encouraged my male clients to, who've been sexually abused, if they go to the urologist, if they're going in for a physical, I encourage them to, for them to tell their physician, I've been sexually abused. This is difficult for me. I need you to be a little patient with me about this part of the examination, yeah. you know, and, and to be an advocate for themselves. Yeah, yeah. I've I've had to tell you know, all my doctors and dentists that this isn't easy for me. Right, but, right. Um, I've also found I'm a lot more comfortable with female doctors and, and mm. so forth because mm -hmm. it just isn't as triggering. Yeah. Well, and another thing that I talk about in the book, or I have a section of where boys will sometimes worry about perceived consequences for the mother if they yes. come out and disclose. You know, we were just talking about that a little bit, but one specific scenario that I discuss in the book, one boy, he was being abused by two of his older cousins, and he was afraid that if he told his parents, his dad was so volatile to begin with, yeah. that he was afraid he would kill his cousins. And he was afraid that he would kill his mom because he would accuse the mom of not watching him. Mm, yeah. And so he felt like he had to protect his mother by not disclosing his abuse because of the way he was concerned that his father would react. Yeah. Wow. You know, this... a boy, boys can sometimes fear, uh, just like any person, uh, about disclosure, but fear of punishment and retribution. I, I have oh, yeah. one story in the book where uh, a boy got physically beaten disclosing that he was being abused mm -hmm. or, or or victim blamed well why did you let that happen what did you do to make them yeah right or why didn't you fight back you know and then so yeah. i teach you how to be a man by right yeah i remember a time when my mom said to me something like there was a person living in our house it was like they've never done anything i was probably nine or ten and i thought the message was don't tell me. But she was saying, you can tell me. And I remember my little mind was too late. Right. It's already happened. I didn't voice that, but I didn't know. Yeah. Well, or if they ask you like, well, they haven't done anything. You have they? Exactly. They That's it, so good. If they ask it in a way that implies this better not have happened. Yeah. 
A child's <laughs> not going to disclose that. That's not the way you ask. You're making okay. feel guilty if something did happen. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. another big one that I wanted to touch on was especially for boys, like if they, if this person has groomed them, they have probably, well, let me back up. People who groom children have a very keen awareness to identify the vulnerabilities of children. And they know how to meet those needs for the child. So they will look at the vulnerable emotional needs of this child, learn how to fulfill those emotional needs before the sexual abuse ever really begins. So a lot of boys will have positive feelings toward their abuser. This is my coach. This is my mentor. This is the person who takes me out for ice cream. This is the person who plays football with me. This is the person who watches me when mom is gone. This is the only guy I have to take me fishing and camping. And so they have positive feelings for their abuser. Mm-hmm. No, and, and I'm sure you guys have talked many times on your show about, you know, sometimes kids are even told we have such a special relationship. Mm-hmm. You'd never want to ruin this by telling anybody our secrets. Exactly. And what we do. They're just master manipulators. Yes. Yeah. Taking advantage of those vulnerabilities that they see in children. Yeah. And yeah. so many people wonder why it takes so long for a survivor right forward and and another thing that a friend of mine never realized about being a survivor is also the stigma attached to male survivors because the only time most people hear about male survivors or predominantly is when they also become perpetrators and you know that's right. a horrible thing and then they talk about well he was a survivor of all this horrible abuse when he was young. So of course he became this perpetrator. And then of course that Mm -hmm. perpetuates the myth that survivors are going to perpetuate, you know, which that is, there's such a low percentage of people who are used to turn into perpetrators. Yeah. That is a complete myth. It is, but it's, it's prevalent because, you know, news talks about it because they want to sensationalize any crime. So if they can sensationalize the perpetrator, you know, of some horrible crime by telling, talking about how horrible their childhood was. And, you know, it's all about sensationalizing it. But then if you're a survivor, you wonder, am I going to be that guy? Am I going to be the one that turns into, you know, another? And I know I I wondered that as I became older and was confused and thinking, well, I can't talk about this because people are going to think I'm going to be the... Right. And that's one, uh, that's another reason I have listed in the book is because kids will fear that they are going to be viewed like they're going to be a perpetrator. Mm -hmm. And 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 so they, they don't want to be put in that position. And I, you know, I've always liked being around kids and teaching kids but i always feared i don't understand exactly why but i always thought kids could understand my secret better than adults could and i'm not sure why interesting when it's easier to tell up here yeah yeah and be believed than it is to take that risk and tell an adult yeah you know and another thing that um and we talked a little bit about this before but you know some kids will think well i need to view this as initiation into being adulthood or this is a rite of passage this is me becoming a man but some perpetrators will actually tell kids your mom's not a boy she doesn't know how to talk to you about these things she doesn't know how to teach you the things that men and boys are supposed to know about sex so i i have to do that for you 
as the man in your life, as your mentor, you know, and so they'll again, use that vulnerability of single motherhood and that, that this boy lacks a male role model. And they'll use that whole concept of masculinity and sexuality and that we're both men. So you need to understand what happens and what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, and and then so many men fall under that self-blame. They blame themselves. Mm -hmm. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I shouldn't have been with that person. I should have fought this person off. I should have told them no. Yeah. I should have known better. You know, and I think for many years, I didn't actually label my situation with that other teenage boy as abuse because he did ask me, can I, can I touch you? Can I show you something? And I said, yes. Of course, I didn't know what was coming, but I said, yes. And so then I always kind of thought, well, that was probably just kind of same age, same sex play, mm-hmm. but it wasn't. And, yeah. and here's what I've grown to help men decipher between that. The research shows that 25% of adolescent boys will have some kind of same sex sexual encounter, but that's typically just for the purpose of self-gratification. They're mm-hmm. just wanting to see what it's like to be touched by another person. That happens in 25% of cases, but the distinguishing factor is I call it the yuck Factor. And this comes from a researcher, Melissa Bradley Ball out of Tennessee, where if, if you had another encounter with the same aged peer and you walked away and felt like yucky, that was yucky, yeah. then something there wasn't right. That was abuse. You were being violated somehow. Something was happening to you that you were not ready for, you weren't comfortable with. Some men will tell me, well, I did this with my my brother who was about the same age or my friend who is about the same age. And I always start talking about how did you feel about that encounter? You know, what did, was it simply for self-gratification? Were you just curious? Was this experimentation or was there something yucky about that? Did you walk away with the yuck factor? And if you did, that's a different story. Yeah. And I know I walked away from my situation with a yuck factor. I walked away terrified scared to death, didn't understand what had happened, but I knew it felt yucky. Yeah. And when I was abused, when I was around 11 or so, it would have been most boys that were teens or so would have thought that was not abuse because it would have seemed so attractive. It was an older girl. She was a teenager, mm-hmm. probably, you know, high school, late high school age. Right. Attractive. I've been kind of set up in this by my friend who was my age and and it was his sister Mm. and yet the feelings i had during and the feelings i had after were so traumatic but no most guys would go oh he got initiated you know oh you got lucky you got lucky and no it was not it was severely traumatic and i think so much of what we've talked about in the past is how the difference of how between men and women how men are brought up to be we we, right. we don't get to talk about our feelings we we have to be strong we have right. to hide our those man rules yeah those, all the those man, man rules and yeah. so because of that we are basically taught to suppress and right. not share and that's why it's so hard to share and that's why i wanted to do this podcast to open it up for men to share about it well i think some boys too feel 
they walk away from the situation and know, well, that emotionally damaged me, that emotionally hurt me, but I can't share that because boys don't talk about their feelings and they don't talk about emotional pain. But it wasn't sexual abuse because there was no physical damage. I wasn't physically hurt mm-hmm. in that where, you know, girls, they probably get physically hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, but me as a boy, I wasn't physically hurt. So I don't, I either don't see that as abuse. I don't label it as abuse or I just won't admit to the emotional pain that was involved. Wow. Well, another thing is, and, and I'm sure you've talked about this multiple times on this show as well, but kids are threatened by their abusers. You know, they're, I'll kill your whole family. I'll kill you or they'll send me to jail and I'll get killed. Is that what you want for me? Is that, is that what you want to have happen to me yeah you know and so they'll use those threats Mm -hmm. or bribe the kids not to tell in some way yeah this is our special secret here's an ipad you know exactly exactly and we already mentioned fears of becoming an abuser and that whole concept of shame you know kids who are being abused just have so much shame and if it's ongoing abuse or it doesn't even have to be ongoing abuse but sometimes that shame turns into toxic shame i'm not just bad because of what happened i must be inherently bad Mm -hmm. for this to have happened to me Mm -hmm. something is wrong with me as a person to the core of who i am there's something wrong for this to have had to have happened to me because it doesn't Mm. happen to anyone else so there must be something wrong right yeah and so we've touched on many many of the the reasons why men don't tell and hold on to their secret for for so long you know this is probably the longest chapter in the book um because it it lists all these reasons and (laughs) and i I provide examples from the 13 men that i interviewed Mm -hmm. of their thoughts to each one of these uh different areas of why men don't tell so that way the reader can really identify and let that resonate with them and help them to see oh i thought that too i thought i had that very same thought You're not alone. Well, a couple of things that before we wrap it up, I want to make sure everyone knows where they can get your book. And we will provide a link on our website. But also I'm curious about, so you went into counseling psychology. Was that before or after you were able to talk about this? Or what was your progression into uh, your understanding of your abuse? Well, my, how I got interested in this topic is I took a, childhood sexual abuse course in graduate school. And I actually ended up doing my dissertation on childhood sexual abuse. At that point, it was 1997, I think when I defended my doctoral dissertation and Megan's Law had just come out. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Megan's Law, but it, you know it has to do with perpetrators and r- reporting. And, and so what I did is I took, at that point, there were 250 sexual abuse laws across all 50 states. And I examined them on eight different variables and looked at all the disparity that was in the laws in each state that was allowing perpetrators to jump around Mm -hmm. and be able to continue to perpetrate or hide from authorities by moving to these states who had really lenient laws compared to laws that, you know, states that had very stringent laws. Mm -hmm. And so that I did my dissertation on that. And So I just had a lot of interest in the area. And then as part of my doctoral training, I worked in a county jail where because of my background in addictions, I ended up seeing all the sex offenders because so many of the sex offenders had a sexual addiction. And so then 
that took me into an area of looking at sexual abuse as well because so many of them had been sexually abused, you know? And so it was over the course of time that I continued to, to research, to write, and then begin to think more about my own scenarios that I went through and how they left me feeling. And I just saw so many ongoing recurrent themes across men who'd been sexually abused. And I thought, I have a lot of these themes as well. And so I began to rethink the scenarios that I went through, and especially about the yuck factor, and realized this was really traumatic for me. I come to the point where I did label it sexual abuse for myself. And for him, too, because his parents were exposing us to explicit graphic porno pornographic material at a young age when we had no business being around that material. And it was just freely yeah. laid out, yeah. you know, so in a way we were we were both being abused. Yeah. yeah, you were set up. Yeah. In my book, I talk about the difference between contact and non-contact abuse. Mm -hmm. And we have to talk about both of those in today's world with social media and pornography and the internet and, and the way predators are, are gaining access to children. It may never be contact abuse. It doesn't, you know, it may be non-contact abuse and states in their definitions of sexual abuse now have, are expanding sexual abuse to, to much more than just contact abuse. Yeah. If you're convincing a 10 or 11 or 12 year old girl or boy to sex with you, that's, that's abuse. Yeah. That Absolutely. Is, and yeah. you know, there's no contact there, but you're manipulating them and you're exposing them to things yeah. that they should not be exposed to at their age. And that's right. traumatize them. The internet is a dangerous place for children. Well, it is. And, and even, you know, I've talked a lot to groups of men recently about their early exposure to pornography in and of itself is sexual abuse it is it can now think about what explicit pornographic material does to the mind of a young boy yeah, yeah. it's sexually abusive to their mind yeah and nowadays it's so readily available it's mm -hmm. really scary for yeah, yeah the, the research shows that the average age that a child is exposed to pornography on the internet was at one time a few years ago age 11 there are studies now coming out where it's approaching the age of eight wow where it's the first time that a child is exposed and then there's more research that shows that the average teen teenage boy watches two hours of porn a week yeah. the average boy you know this isn't your deviant kid that's you know right. conduct disorder this is the average teenage boy watching two hours of porn yeah. per week and yeah. what kind of damage is that going to lead to their psyche to their ability to have healthy intimate relationships their view of sexuality and it's it's not just boys it's girls too yeah mm -hmm. it is Boy, this is, I feel like we need to do a whole nother show on that too. And we would really like to have you back, Doug. One of the things that when I listened to your video was just that there's this horribleness of abuse, which is that perpetrator, but there's also this innocentness of abuse. And the more we talk about it, and what is really interesting is when Kevin or I, or his wife, Charnel, who you'll love her when you meet her, when like people, she'll say something about, oh, my husband does a podcast and for, you know, adults who are sexually abused at kids and so many go, oh, I was, but yet they haven't. And, and even my ex-husband wants Kevin to 
interview him because he's, you know, he's like, well, I was. And it, it's like the more that we can talk about this and, and not normalize it, but let people know that this does happen. And the biggest thing is that there is help. You know, I look yes. at you and you've created this great life for yourself. I look at Kevin, he's created this great life for himself. And that this could be something that if, if it stews inside of us, that we are basically in chains, we can't get yes. free and yes. getting free, yes. speaking the words is what's going to open up our life. And when Kevin was going to share, I tell this all the time, when he was going to share a story, his pastor asked him to. And when he said to the pastor, people may not want me to work with Awana anymore. And his pastor was like, mind blown. Mm, I didn't want Kevin to share. One of the children's um, group. Yeah, he works with the children's group. I worked with Sunday school and sometimes worked with the Awana. And I was like, you know, this might happen. He's like, no. And I was like, yeah. Right. And I'm I'm all about telling the story. Go ahead. Yeah, tell your story. Uh, In the last to second to the last chapter, I think chapter 23 in the book, I talk about different models of healing. And one of those is uh, removing yourself from the dungeon. Because so many people who are sexually abused put themselves in a dungeon and they feel like they have to stay in there. It's and it's full of shame. And I try to help victims who are survivors see that this is not your shame to carry. No. This is your perpetrator shame to carry. They were in the wrong. They were doing something wrong. You are innocent. You were an innocent child. This is not your shame to carry. And you have to give it back to the perpetrator and relieve yourself of that burden. Yeah. You are not shame. You do not embody shame. Yeah. You didn't deserve so that shame. You didn't earn it. Right. Yeah. So good. Well, and I would be happy to come back and talk about any other parts of the book or topics that you would like to talk about around around uh, this whole concept of, of sexual abuse for boys or for girls. Well, yeah, and- I would because we always say we're not counselors. You know, I'm I am a coach, a recovery coach for drugs and alcohol, but really it's all right. the same. But you know, we like to point people in a direction, and then we we but we also like to say, hey, we're here if you need to talk. But to have someone like you who is saying what we say, but you're coming from all of this research and um a a counselor's position it's just so great and well another big thing is um this is another husband material the other company that i i work with a lot so many men who've been sexually abused it has a direct effect on the kind of pornography that they're drawn to because they're replaying aspects of their abuse in their adult sexual lives, either through pornography or the type of sex that they're, they like or the fetishes they've developed. There's a, there's a direct link between what you've experienced and the abuse that you've experienced and now what is we consider your arousal template. Stimulation, yeah. Well, yeah. we do want to do in the future, we've done one already, Doug, but we, we would like to do panel discussions on mm. topics because it's great to get other viewpoints, other yeah. you know voices about the different topics. And so yeah. now that we've got you on Facebook Messenger, we'll let you know. We're going to try sure. and win with, um, with Mike again. And we, ha- we have a couple other guests that we've had on that we're going to try and get a panel yeah. and just yeah. have yeah. Every- And now you're our resident expert. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you're the we're pro- so grateful the that you that. took this time. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to be on again as a panelist or whatever you need. So that's it for today. We are going to have a prayer time if you want to stick with us. If not, 
We believe in you. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your stories. If you like this podcast, please rate and review because that's how other people can find us. And we really want to spread this message. Father, I just thank you for all your blessings, especially for all the times you want to reassure us that we are not alone, that you are there for us, and also that there are others that share our traumas, share our issues, and that there is healing there, knowing that there are others that want to reach back and help us, and that you, Father, that you want to be there in our healing and to show us how much we matter to you and that you want us to be healed. Lord, I just thank you for Doug and for the work he is doing and the bravery he has shown for helping other men and also sharing his story. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless his work and bless his time with the men that are hurting, that are recovering, that have been traumatized. I just pray you would give him wisdom and guidance with their healing, with his working with them to get to a place of hope and and fulfillment and knowing that they have a purpose, that they don't have to be bound by what happened to them, that that doesn't have to define them, that they have a purpose and you know that purpose for them and you want to help them fulfill that, Lord. And I just thank you for all the men who are listening, that you would bless them and help them and that your peace would be on them. In your name, I pray. Amen. Father, I'm just so grateful for the work Doug's done, Lord, for how he is helping so many people, Lord. And I know people that are listening are are really touched and they're they're knowing someone or they're realizing something in themselves, Lord. And I pray they'll take that next step to find a counselor, to get the book, to reach out, Lord, that uh, their story matters. It's important and that there is safety because that is a big fear. And I just pray that uh, you will open the doors and help them in their in their next step of uh, next step of healing, Lord. And I just thank you so much that you love us and you want these good things for us, that your intent was never for any of us to be hurt, Lord, but that even though that has happened, that there is help and there is a good thriving life ahead for all of us. God, and I just pray for this ministry that you would touch Kevin and Lori and give them guidance and give them connections to people who can come onto the show and and speak truth, Mm. God, and that you can uh, be a vessel through them of light, God, and that you can use them as your vessels to bring healing to all the people that are listening who are struggling with issues of abuse and and past hurt and pain. God, we pray that that the three of us in this podcast specifically would would reach out to people who are, are hurting and and are feeling desperate, God, and they would feel your love, loving arms wrap around them, God, and that they would come to a place of finding help and and salvation for themselves. And I just pray that you would touch Kevin and Lori personally, professionally, individually in their relationships, God, and just keep your hand upon them and continue to to guide this ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.